In recent weeks, the Lord has been fashioning and refashioning us like a potter at his wheel from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. And so I'll invite you to turn there with me again this morning, this time to chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, and we will read the first 14 verses. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Father, over and over again, Jeremiah emphasizes that these are the words that you declare. And so help us, Lord, to hear your word today as your word and to believe it and to take it to heart and to put it into application in our own lives and in our own faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may have noticed that this One brief passage contains fully four relatively famous verses of Scripture. Verse 10 is famous because it became a touchstone verse in those Old Testament days when the Jews finally did return from their exile in Babylon after 70 years. In Jeremiah's day, when he wrote this letter, the Jews were going into exile. But both the book of Second Chronicles and the book of Ezra describe their glorious return from exile into the land of promise 70 years later. And both of those books describe the return from exile 
by saying that it happened, quote, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. And when they speak of the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord that was fulfilled when the Jews returned from their exile, both Ezra and Chronicles are referencing Jeremiah 29.10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. And I'm sure you can see why this verse would have been precious to the Jews as they passed back through Jerusalem's gates after 70 years away in Babylon. God has kept his word. He has done what he said he would do by the mouth of Jeremiah all those decades ago. And so for the Jewish people, verse 10 was a famous verse. It became for them a touchstone of God's faithfulness upon their return after 70 years. And then verse 11 is quite well known also, isn't it? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Some of you have memorized that verse. Perhaps for us, this is the most famous of all the verses in this chapter, maybe the most famous of all the verses in this book of Jeremiah. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That verse is still oft quoted by God's people today, is it not? As a reassurance of God's sovereignty over our lives and of his goodwill toward his people. And then, of course, verse 13 is often quoted in our day as well, isn't it? You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Some of you have perhaps used that verse in sharing Jesus with your neighbors and urging them to earnestly seek the Lord. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And then also Jeremiah 29.7 has garnered a good bit of attention in our modern day as Christians wrestle with how to live for God in the midst of a pagan culture. And verse 7 has become something of a watchword. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. And so for many of us, there may be a good bit that sounds familiar as we read Jeremiah chapter 29. That's one reason I chose it as one of our focus passages in this brief tour of Jeremiah's prophecy. But it is important for us not simply to know these verses and to have them in our minds, but it's important if we're really going to understand this famous handful of verses that we understand clearly the context into which they were originally written. Before we can most faithfully apply these words to ourselves, we need to understand how they applied in the context and to the people for whom they were first written. And the context of Jeremiah 29 is, of course, the Jewish exile into Babylon. That's what we read in verse 1, is it not? Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile. The priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The Jewish people uh, were under God's discipline 
for their idolatry, for their sin, for their Sabbath breaking was one of the things that God was upset with them about. And so God was sending them into exile in Babylon. And this famous chapter was written in the form of a letter to some of those people who had already, by this time in Jeremiah's ministry, been carried away by Nebuchadnezzar and resettled in the great city of Babylon. There were actually three waves of Jewish captives who were taken away from their homeland into Babylon. The first wave, as we can read in the book of Daniel, uh, was when Nebuchadnezzar carried away some of the cream of the crop, young men from among the noble families whom he brought to Babylon and trained for his service. And the most famous among that first wave of exiles were, of course, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then there was a second wave sometime later in which Nebuchadnezzar once again poached some of the most skilled of the Jewish people, soldiers, craftsmen, smiths, 10,000 people in all. And you can read about them in 2 Kings 24. And then there was eventually a third roundup of the Jewish people in 2 Kings 25 in which Jerusalem was even further cleared and only some of the poorest of the land were left to attend to agricultural duties. Three waves of exiles, and Jeremiah 29 was written, according to verse 2, in between the second and third of those waves. So when Jeremiah writes here, there's a small populace of God's covenant people still living in Judah and Jerusalem, but there's also a significant population of 10,000 or more of them now living far away from home as exiles under God's discipline in the pagan city of Babylon. And this letter was first written for them, for those people who had been carried away already. It was written to explain to them how they were to live as exiles in a strange land, how they were to proceed for those 70 years of God's discipline that were ahead, how they were to press on when they were far from home, and how they were to hope in the Lord in the midst of their difficulty. And Jeremiah, as he writes to them about how to live and how to hope in the land of their exile, Jeremiah gives to them from God two basic pieces of instruction. And we're going to come back to these over and over again today. Two basic pieces of instruction for living as an exile. Number one, Jeremiah is going to tell them, settle in. Settle in. And then number two, he's going to say to them, look to the future. Settle in. And look to the future. And just notice both of those themes with me here in this passage. Jeremiah's first piece of instruction in verses 4 through 7 is settle in. Let me read it to you again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. Did you hear the emphasis in those verses? The Israelites were going into Babylon for a good long while, 70 years according to verse 10. And so God's instruction to them is settle in. They weren't to go to Babylon and stay in refugee camps. They weren't 
uh, to hope for a speedy turn of events and a speedy return. They weren't just to seek temporary accommodation in rented quarters. No, God said to them, go ahead and build houses. Go ahead and plant gardens. Go ahead and start families. Have children, have grandchildren, and plan for a long sojourn. And not only that, but since they would be seven decades in Babylon, God commanded them actually to seek the welfare of that city, to pray for that city, because this was going to be their home, verse 10, for quite some time. And to the extent that Babylon prospered, so would they in their new habitation. Settle in, God says in verses 4 through 7. Some other so-called prophets were evidently preaching a different message, according to verses 8 and 9, perhaps encouraging the people that their exile would be quite short-lived. But the Jews weren't to listen to them. They were to accept the fact of a 70 years exile and to settle in and to make the most of it. They were under God's hand of discipline, and they just needed to accept it and get on with life as best as they could under the circumstances, serve God as best as they could under the circumstances, settle in. Now, we need to be careful when we say that to understand that the command to settle in to Babylon, to settle down in Babylon, was not a command to become comfortable with its paganism. God was not telling his people to become fully immersed in Babylonian culture. He was not telling them to become Babylonians themselves so that, for instance, when they are commanded to go on with weddings and childbirth in verse 6, the idea was never that they were to intermarry with the pagans. They were still to keep their distinctive Jewish character, and many of them probably needed to rediscover it even. And so they were not to become one with Babylon, but they were to accept the fact that they were going to be living in Babylon for quite some time, and they were to do their best to go on with their lives, to seek the welfare of the city of their new residence, and generally to settle into life in a foreign land. They were to acquiesce to God's discipline and to their status as long-term exiles. So that's the first piece of instruction for the exiles. Settle in. But then Jeremiah also says, look to the future in verses 10 through 14. Look to the future. Settle in for now, but look ahead to what I have for you. Let me read you verses 10 through 14 again. For thus says the Lord... When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Now those are wonderful promises, are they not? Yes, they were going to take 70 years before unfolding, but when they did unfold, what a future to look forward to. And that's the thrust of these verses. God doesn't actually command his people here to look to the future, but by telling them what the future will bring, that is, in essence, what he's doing here. Telling them, look to the future. How were they to live in exile? Well, first they were to settle in, to be prepared for the long haul in Babylon, and to make the most of it. But then secondly, they were to realize that at the end of those 70 years, God had plans for them. 
Plans to give them a future and a hope. Plans to bring them back to their homeland. Verses 10 and 14. Plans to bring them back to their God. Verses 12 and 13. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. And the Jewish people were to look to this glorious future and to wait upon it. And to wait upon the Lord for all those 70 years in the city of Babylon. They would be in Babylon for quite some while. And they were simply to accept that fact and to make the most out of it. But at the same time, they were always to remember that there was a day coming. A distant future awaiting from them for them. And a different future awaiting for them. And they were to look to that future. So here's the Lord's twofold plan for his exiled people. Settle in. Make a light for yourself. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile But know that you won't dwell there forever. Know that I will come to you again and bring you back to the land of promise and back into full fellowship with myself. And that last part is so important. That God would bring them back into fellowship with himself. At the end of these 70 years, God wasn't just restoring his people to their land, but to their God. This nation, which had so long rejected him, which had burned incense to idols, who could not see or hear or answer prayer, this nation, at the end of those 70 years, would pray to their own God. Once again, verse 12, and he would answer. They would seek him wholeheartedly. Once again, verse 13, and he would be found by them when they did so. This was part of the promise as well. Not only that the people would come back to their land, but that they would come back to their God. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So this was God's plan. This was God's word in Jeremiah's day. Settle into the city where I've sent you and seek its welfare, but look to the future as well. For a day is coming when you'll return both to Jerusalem and to me. But the question this morning is, how does all of this apply to us today? We love verse 11, and we quote from verse 13, and we try and learn from verse 7. But those lovely words were all written to people living long ago in exile in Babylon. And here we are, half a world and more than two millennia away in Cincinnati, Ohio. And yet somehow... These words must have application to us, too, because all Scripture, Paul says, is profitable. So how do we profit? How do we make application of these very specific words spoken to a very specific group of people living in a very specific situation so long ago in the days of the Old Testament? Well, as with any other passage of Scripture, we need to think about the ways in which The ancient context, the ancient setting and time and need for a word from the Lord, the ways in which the ancient people, we have to think about the ways in which these ancient contexts somehow mirror our own. And as I think about the Israelites and God's word to them during 70 years of exile in Babylon, one immediate point of contact, one immediate point of application, it seems to me, is to God's people today who are living under his discipline. This is a word for people who are living under God's discipline, and it applies to people today who may be living under God's discipline. That was the reason for this 70 years of exile, was it not? 
Israel went into Babylon because they had forgotten the Lord, they had rejected the Lord, they had broken his covenant, they had worshipped idols, they had ignored his Sabbaths, and so God sent them into exile for seven decades until the land recovered its Sabbaths and so that the people would learn their lesson. Israel was in exile as an act of the Lord's discipline. And you know, God is still in the business of disciplining his people today, isn't he? I'm not sure many Christians have this on our radar screens like we should. I'm not sure that many of us, in other words, usually ponder whether the difficulties in our lives might somehow be God's discipline for our sinful behavior. But just because we aren't always aware that God is spanking us doesn't mean that he's not doing it. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, Hebrews 11.6. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say that if God doesn't discipline you, then you must not really be his child. God's discipline is a normal part of the Christian life. That is to say that the Lord still today brings hardships upon his people as he did to the Israelites in times of old in order to bring us to repent of our sinful ways and to return to him with a whole heart and to pray to him once more, verse 12, and to seek him and find him once more, verse 13, and to be trained to live more faithfully in his sight. God still brings hardship today to bring us to himself. And that's what he was doing when he sent his Old Testament people into exile. He wasn't giving up on them, far from it. He was disciplining them like a father does his child so that they would learn their lesson. I wonder if you ever ask yourself during times of trial if God might be doing such a thing to you. Now, I'm not saying, and I want you to hear this really clearly, I'm not saying that every time you get sick or every time you have a financial difficulty or every time life is difficult, that this is always the discipline of the Lord. I'm not saying that far from it. Many times our difficulties are not God's discipline for some specific sin which we have committed. They're just the overflow of the curse that sin in general has brought upon this world. So even the righteous suffer, and sometimes the righteous suffer more than others. And even in those times, God is working difficulties for the good of his own. But there are times, the Bible says, when difficulty comes upon us, sickness, trauma, financial straits, unsettled life situations, there are times when these things come upon us from God's hand precisely because we have not been behaving as we ought. God says in verse 4 that he is the one who sent the Jews into Exile, And he will sometimes do similar things to us to get our attention and to bring us to repentance for some sin. And so I want to urge you, first of all, to pay more attention to that possibility in your life. Not to a morbid extent, but to be much more alert to the connection between the known sins in your life and the difficulties that arise right alongside them. If you know that you're not doing right, and then some difficult thing happens to you, I want you to learn to put two and two together, especially if the difficulty hits you in precisely the same area as the sin. If you're sinning with your money, for instance, and then something happens that really hurts your pocketbook, put two and two together, my friend, and repent. Come to God and pray about it, verse 12. Seek Him with all your heart, verse 13, and repent. As I say, this is one area in which the memorable words of Jeremiah 29 apply to our lives when we are, like the ancient Jews, under the Lord's hand of discipline. So let's just think back through Jeremiah's two main pieces of instruction to those who are living in that situation. First, 
You'll remember Jeremiah told these people under God's discipline to settle in. God's discipline is going to last 70 years, so go ahead and build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children, be a good and prayerful citizen of Babylon, know that when she fares well, so will you, and settle in. In other words, God is saying to them, accept the fact that you're under my discipline, and know that you will be under my discipline until I'm ready to bring you out. There's no sense In the Israelites trying to buck the system, there's no sense in them trying to kick against the goads or pretending that the things that were happening to them weren't as serious as they were. No, they just needed to acquiesce to the discipline that had been laid upon them, to accept it and to go on with life and with obedience to God the best they could under the circumstances. And God says the same to you this morning if you're under his discipline or if you someday will be. There's no use in trying to hack your way out of it. Or worse, listening to the false prophets in verses 8 and 9 who tell you that it's not really the Lord's discipline. If God has laid a heavy hand on you, if he has given you a difficult lot in life because of some disobedience, some sin against him, then it is futile for you to try to unshoulder the burden or to act as if it's really not the Lord's discipline. No, what you need to do instead is to let it drive you back to the Lord, verses 12 and 13, to genuinely seek his face again which you will find, verse 13, if you search with all your heart. And then beyond that, you must simply accept the discipline that the Lord has laid upon you. You must receive it as part of your normal life for however long the Lord sees fit to leave it. And you must go on with your life and serve the Lord as best you can under your present difficulty. Settle in and accept the Lord's discipline, whether it be for 70 minutes or 70 hours or 70 days or 70 years of your life. But then also, under the Lord's discipline, look to the future with hope. Look to the future with hope. If the Lord is disciplining you, then that means you're his child, right? And if you're his child, then the discipline won't last forever. It will last only for a season, perhaps a relatively long season to you, during which time you must acquiesce to it, but the season will end soon enough. And the Lord's mercy will pour down on you again and you will be restored once again to what you were meant to be. Sometimes that turnabout happens very quickly. Sometimes it doesn't happen until this life is over. But for God's people, there is an end to his discipline. There is an end to the exile and the pain and the spankings that we bring upon ourselves because of sin. And we need, in the midst of the 70 years or the 70 minutes, to have the wherewithal while we accept the Lord's discipline on our backsides, to keep our eyes fixed on the day of our redemption, on the day when we will have fully learned and the difficulty will have been brought to a close. So then, are you under God's discipline this morning? I want you to think seriously about that. Are you suffering some way under the good hand of God because you've not been what you ought to have been? If so, don't blow it off. Don't try to salve your conscience this morning. And don't kick against God's paddle on your backside, but rather accept what you have coming. Accept it as deserved for your sin. Accept it as necessary for your sanctification. Accept it as good from God's hand. Learn from it. Repent, verses 12 and 13, and live your life as best you can from here on out, even with that difficulty hanging about your neck. 
And then remember that God is good enough that when the lesson is fully learned, he will bring you back out of the corner and bless you once again, maybe in this life and certainly in the one to come. Settle in and look to the future, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. But then I also want to point out to you an even broader application of the words of God spoken originally to the Jerusalem exiles. I want to say to you that even aside from God's discipline in our lives, that there is another similarity between God's Old Testament people in Babylon and his New Testament church scattered out among, among every nation. And that similarity is that even aside from the discipline on our lives that may be sometimes, God's people today are, in a sense, living in exile, just as much as the people of Judah were in the days of Jeremiah. Even when we're doing well and right, we are living in exile. Now, you may not feel like an exile, especially if you grew up your whole life right here in Cincinnati. This city may feel quite like home to you. But if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you've been bought with his blood, if you have come to him in faith, this city is not your home. And neither is any other city on planet earth. If you belong to the kingdom of Jesus, well then, no matter where you live in this world, you are a foreigner on foreign soil. Isn't that what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 11? We are aliens and strangers in this world, he said. And thus we must not take on the world's mores. Aliens and strangers we are. Indeed, if you're reading from the ESV or the NIV, the second of those two verses or those two words in Second First uh, Peter two eleven is translated exiles. Exiles. That's what the followers of Christ are in this world. We are exiles. We are living in a place that is not our home. Exiles. Not for the same disciplinary reasons as the Jews in Babylon, but exiles, aliens, strangers nonetheless, foreigners in a foreign land, the people of God, stuck for the average 70 years of human lifespan in all the various Babylons of this world. That's who we are. And the question is, how are we to live here? How are we to live for God in a world that's not our home? In a world in which, frankly, the more we know of it, the less we want to stay here. How do we live as exiles for 70 years in a foreign land. Well, I suggest to you that we're to do so in much the same way as the people of Judah were to live as exiles in Babylon. On the one hand, there is a sense in which we are to settle in. There's a sense in which we are to accept the fact that for most of us, we really are going to be here for 70 years or so. And we are to accept that fact. And we are to make lives for ourselves and for our children here in our own personal Babylon. Yes, we know that the city is going to fall. Yes, we know that Babylon cannot last, and so we don't become citizens of Babylon, but we are probably going to be here for a while. And so we set up homes, and we take care of our yards, and we have families, and we take jobs, and we try to live for God as best we can under the circumstances. And while we're at it, we don't hole up in our little conclaves but we live as faithful citizens of the city. We seek the welfare of the city where God has sent us, verse 7. We pray for our city. 
We do good to our neighbors. We promote righteous laws in our land. We invest in our neighborhoods. We sow the seed of the gospel. And we do the best to make the world just a little bit better place to live in. And that's not an anti-Christian position. Yes, we are simply strangers passing through a strange land. No, the world is not our home. But since it is quite a significant rest stop for us, since we are going to be here for quite a while, most of us, and since there are other immortal souls living here in the city with us, we must settle in and do them and our city good. And I wonder how you're doing with that. I wonder if you have a vision for the welfare of this one particular city in which we all happen to live. I wonder if you have a vision for the welfare of the myriad cities across this globe who need salt and light that only we can be. Seeking the welfare of the city has implications for things like good government and pollution and medical care and child safety and the sanctity of human life and care for the elderly and so many other things. These Things are not the ultimate things in the Christian life, but so long as we live in this world's cities, God wants us to do them good in what ways we can. And of course, there's no greater way that you and I can seek the welfare of the city than to scatter the seed of the gospel as broadly and as deeply as possible in this city. The best way, the most vital way, the only eternal way to seek the welfare of this city is to be all throughout it making disciples of Jesus Christ. Telling people how he lived without sin where we have not. Telling them how he died for our sins so that we need not. Telling them that he's risen and reigning and returning to bring with him new heavens and a new earth. And urging them to repent of sin and to entrust themselves to this Jesus and to observe all that he commanded us. That's what we're to be about doing. Seeking the welfare of our city. And as we do that, he is with us always, isn't he? Even to the end of the age. That, brothers and sisters, is the chief way in which we must seek the welfare of the city where God has sent us into exile, and I urge you to do it. This world is not your home, but while you're staying here, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. But then, then, keep an eye also on the future. Because there is a day coming when Christ will usher in that new heavens and that new earth, and when this city will be no more, and when the people of God will finally go home. There is a day coming after the appointed time of our exile is up when God will bring his new humanity back again, not to the land of Canaan, but to the Garden of Eden, to a new earth that will once again be very good, to a new Jerusalem, And so as long as we live in this world and seek the welfare of its cities, we must also keep one eye fixed on that great day yet future when Christ will come again and we will go to that city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Never lose sight of that city and of that day. Never lose sight of the new Jerusalem even while you labor here for the welfare of old Babylon. In fact... Here's the ultimate application of that most famous verse, number 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. 
Those words do sometimes have application to God's plans for us in this world. They have application, of course, to the ending of seasons of discipline. They have application to the coming through on the other side of some trial and so on. But they will find their great fulfillment. They will find their great application when Christ comes again. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Christ is that future, and he is that hope. He is the blessed hope, and he is coming. And what a future and a hope we have in him. This city, with its gray skies and dilapidated buildings and its endemic social problems and its hospital beds and its traffic jams and its inhabitants so often deaf to our good news, this city is not all there is. And neither is this world with its diseases and its terrorists, and its plane crashes, and its dictators, and its persecutions of the people of God. But there is a place where all the tears will be wiped away, and where the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and where there will no longer be any night, and where the tabernacle of God will be among men once more, and where Christ will make all things new. For Jesus says to his people today, just as the Lord spoke to the exiles so long ago, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you. And so, if you're growing tired of this old world, as I seem to be more and more all the time, if you're seeking the welfare of the city but finding yourself sometimes growing weary in so doing, remember the promise of this passage and remember its eternal fulfillment In Christ, verses 10 and 11, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope.